if you have your Bibles this morning, I would appreciate if you take them and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The title of this message is Be Rich. Now, I stole that. I just wanted to tell you about that right up front. I stole that title from Andy Stanley, who actually uses that Be Rich title on a yearly basis for some uh, fundraising that they do, but I, I liked it so much. And interesting enough, we have discovered that if the term rich is in a title, on our website, it gets more hits than anything else. People, there's just something about rich and the Bible and people wanna listen to those. So for all of you online, we're talking about being rich today. It might not be exactly in the way that they're thinking, but we're gonna get there and discover what it is to, that God wants to say to us. First Timothy, I'm gonna read out of chapter six, verses 17 through 19. And this is continuing the theme that we've been on all month about living for a greater cause and it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Lord. Lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit says and the courage to obey in Jesus' name, amen. We have a vision and, and mission statement that are up here. Our vision statement, locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus, every heart. That doesn't mean that there are some people <clears throat> that are excluded. That means that everybody that is alive deserves to hear about Jesus. Deserve to be pursued. Our mission to be God's people, living in God's power, fulfilling God's purpose. I need to tell you that I am so grateful to be a part of a church that this isn't just banners on the wall, but this is the way that we live and the way that we function. In fact, I received word this week from the National World Missions Department that out of, thir uh, out of 13,000 Assemblies of God churches in America, we came in in the top one and a half percent in missions giving last year. Yes, give yourselves a proud applause. We came in 178th out of 13,000. Thank you for believing in Jesus Christ and giving unto the Lord. The text that I just read this morning, I'm gonna ask you to hang on to it because we're not gonna to get to it until the very end of the message, but it's there for you. The heart of Christianity is this idea, that God became one of us and came to live among us. That God became one of us and came and lived among us. The Apostle John is you begin to look at the life and the way that he lived and the way that he came to faith and included times in his life where he came to believe and then he had some doubting times and uncertainty and then he didn't know what to believe and then after the resurrection he became a bold spokesman for Jesus and began to tell everybody about the things that had happened in his life and as he is an old man and he's now in his 90s and he's been exiled to the island of Patmos and there alone he begins to think about the relationship that he has had with Jesus and after spending three and a half years with him, here is his conclusion in John 1.14, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, after spending time with Jesus and following this man around and seeing him, he was more than just my friend. He was more than just a rabbi. He was more than just a teacher. 
He was more than just a good man. He was, in fact, sent from heaven and in some mystical way that he did not fully understand at the time was the Son of God who came to live among us. And the question is why? Why? Why would God come to spend time in the world? Why would God come to become one of us? Jesus actually answered this question in a prayer that was overheard in the 17th chapter of John when John hears Jesus praying and Jesus and the Father are having a conversation and this is what Jesus said. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus, in prayer, speaking to the Father. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. The interesting thing about this is that when you and I think of Jesus, particularly in this season as we're getting close to the Easter season, the work that we think that Jesus had to accomplish is often wrapped up in the death of the cross and his resurrection. We think that was his work. That's because that's what we benefit the most from is the fact that he died for our sins as the Lamb of God slain from the beginning for the, for the sins of the world and that in his resurrection we now have salvation and life through him. However, Jesus is praying this prayer to the Father talking about the things that he has accomplished before he goes to the cross. And he tells him, tells the Father, I've already glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. Now think about this. If all he had to do was die on the cross and be resurrected, then what kind of work is he talking to the Father here that he has already come and accomplished? I believe what he's talking about is bringing the glory of God to earth. Jesus saying, Father, I came to explain you to mankind, and I've done everything that I can to make you personable, to make you here, to make you present, And I have accomplished that part of my task. It is an incredible thought because Jesus came to take the guesswork out of what God is like for you and I. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. In fact, at one point in John 14... One of his closest disciples is having a conversation with him, and he, and he tells him, he said, you know, show us the Father, he's telling to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Philip, listen, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have seen me, and if you watch me and listen to me, then you need to understand I am the closest example of the Father that you will ever see. And so what I'd like to talk to you about in light of the fact that we're talking about Living for a greater cause is what Jesus taught us by the way that he lived and what he accomplished. First thing he did was he demonstrated to us what God is like. In demonstrating to us what God is like, Jesus absolutely blew the minds of the first century folks that he was around. Because he just didn't demonstrate who God was, he demonstrated whom God loved. And it absolutely shocked people especially his own Jewish people. In fact, if you're not a Christian today, or maybe you have been a Christian, but for whatever reason, you know, you had some tough tough times with the church and you've wandered away, but if you don't hear anything else I'm saying, and for those of you that are watching online, listen closely, because I want something to settle in your mind today. Notions that we have today, like God is love, or notions that God loves everybody, Or perhaps you've seen a bumper sticker that says, everybody matters to God. You need to understand that these are uniquely 
Christian ideas. These are uniquely Christian ideas. Jesus introduced these ideas to the world when he walked on the earth. In fact, for those of you that may be historians, you might understand that the the Greek and the Roman gods that people served during the first century, they didn't love anybody. In fact, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans toyed with people. They didn't care for people, and consequently, they didn't require people to care for other people based on the way that they worship their gods. So when Jesus, who came to fulfill what the Father is like, comes to us and demonstrates that God loves everybody, not just to the Jewish people, but to all the world, it was a brand new idea that Jesus was introducing. And to compound the confusion for the first century people, And to show the amazing contrast that Jesus was to his culture, you have to understand something about a slave culture, which was common at the time. In fact, in the Roman Empire times, there were more slaves than there were Roman citizens. All over the world, slavery was an assumption. It was just assumed that there was going to be slavery. It wasn't a social issue. It was an economic issue. In fact, a slave culture devalues everyone because everyone is one string of bad luck away from being a slave. Let me describe it. If an enemy came in and took over your village, you became a slave. If your husband died, ladies, you could become a slave. If you were injured and could no longer work, you could become a slave. If you couldn't pay your debts on time or you couldn't pay them in full, you would become a slave. Everybody in ancient times was potentially somebody else's property. Nobody had intrinsic value and nobody had inherent value. Everybody only had economic value. And so when Jesus shows up to demonstrate what God is like and whom God loves, he challenged even the Jewish religious system where even the temple leaders and even the religious leaders at the time were playing to a caste system. They used their Jewish laws to keep women and sinners and Samaritans and shepherds and lepers and the lame in their place. You need to know where you belong if you fall into one of these categories. And what they were trying to do is always remind people that God favored the powerful, that God favored the wealthy, that God favored those who had the resources to force their way into society, that God primarily favored prosperous, healthy men. And that poverty and illness and weakness were a sign of God's disfavor with you or that God was cursing you. If you were sick, God was punishing you or he was punishing your parents for something as a result of the way that God was. But if you were rich and prosperous, clearly you had the favor of God. And in a culture that was depicted primarily with slavery or enslavement, the whole idea of compassion was a completely unnecessary view to the world in which Jesus came into. 
Because in that world, they believed you got what you deserved. So if you were sick, you got what you deserved from God. If you were poor, you got what you deserved. And if you were rich and healthy, that's the favor of God because you got what you deserved. And then along comes Jesus, stepping into a culture of enslavement. And everywhere he went, he elevated everybody's dignity. And he taught in such a way that people begin to understand that compassion was an expression of strength, not weakness. To do for someone what they could never ever pay you back for suddenly became a virtue. That being meek was not the same thing as being weak. The people had intrinsic, inherent value just because you're human. That Jesus would elevate the status of women and for the life of me, every woman should be a follower of Jesus just because what he did in the first century to elevate the life of women as he began to tell them their value. And in the first century, Jesus gave women such dignity that it didn't even fit with the Jewish or the Greek or the Roman culture. It was a brand new idea that Jesus brought. And he gave status and dignity to the poor and to the sick and to the lame and those that everybody else ignored. And then he would stun his audience over and over and over again with the way that he taught In light of that, let me tell you some of these Bible stories very quickly so that you can begin to see them in the light that Jesus brought them to. In Luke 10, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he made a Samaritan, a hero, over a priest, over a Levite. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus did something for the entire world that we still have not recovered from today. And that is that he redefined for the church what a neighbor is. It used to be you find somebody that's just like you. But Jesus redefined it as a neighbor is anybody that has a need that you can do something about. Then you move into Luke chapter 15 and there's the the trilogy, trilogy of the lost things that are there. The parable of the lost sheep the lost coin, and the lost son. And Jesus began to teach his audience that God doesn't view sinners as somebody to chase down and punish. But God views sinners as somebody to pursue and to recapture their attention. That God goes after sinners not to pay them back, but to win them back. And it was brand new teaching for them. Then there's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And Jesus said, not only are you to look at those of you, the people around you who are enemies, but you're to look at them differently. You see, God looks at those who hate him the most and hate you the most, and he invites us into an opportunity that we can love them and pray for them, though they hate us. Brand new thought. That's never been the way that it was before. And he introduced us to the idea of doing good for people that would never, ever, ever even think about doing good for you. I'm telling you, my friend, this was unheard of. A brand new truth that Jesus brought into the world as he's revealing the Father to the world around them. And then there's the widow's might, Mark 12 and Luke 21. Jesus is there at the temple one day and there's a line of people waiting to give their offerings and he's standing there with his disciples and he said, watch this. 
And there was a little lady that was wearing clothes that were not indicative of somebody who had much money. And as she probably is bent over, she walks up to the barrel and she slips a little coin over the side that was so little it didn't even make a sound when it hit the bottom. And Jesus looks at his men and said, did you see that? That woman is rich in the kingdom of God. Blew away the mindset that only the rich and the prosperous were worth something. But that was nothing. That was nothing compared to what he did. Let me tell you something. You and I all know people that that can talk a good story, but they don't necessarily live a good story. You want to find out what somebody means by what they say? You watch what they do. And Jesus' interactions with people were so completely unorthodox that Jesus' time in the first century, cleanliness was next to godliness. That's why you're always hearing people talking about, you know, the ceremony of the unclean. They wanted to stay clean, didn't want to touch things that were unclean. And Jesus turns it all upside down, and his philosophy is dirty hands equal a holy heart. Dirty hands equal a holy heart. And here's his interactions. It starts with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. When Jesus stepped into a conversation with her that was completely unheard of. Jewish men did not speak to Samaritan women. But he didn't stop with the conversation. He said, I'd like you to take your Samaritan bucket and drop it into a Samaritan well. And draw out Samaritan water and let me put your bucket to my lips and drink from your bucket. And it blew away all of her categories. It was so socially abnormal. It was so unorthodox. Not only that, but here's what Jesus did as it would relate to sick people. He would touch them. Rather than staying away from them, he sought them out. And in that day and age, religious people never touched sick people because sick people were cursed by God. It was God has done this to them for whatever reason to pay them back. That begins to explain to us as we read the scripture why it angered the religious leaders so much that Jesus was healing people and changing their destiny. Because if God was a cursing God of sin, how then can God be a healing God that changes their punishment? They couldn't understand that. Brand new concept that Jesus would come in. And not only did Jesus touch them, he embraced them. He touched their sores and their eyes and their skins with his hands. And then the most amazing thing happened. Jesus didn't get sick. They got well. And this is what he did. And then there was these pesky tax collectors. He would visit the most unusual people. He invites Matthew, of all people, to come and join him. And and when I pictured the disciples and their interaction, my mind instantly runs to Peter. Because he's so interesting, and I can picture Peter. Peter probably told Jesus what he thought a lot. And Jesus says to Matthew, listen, we're going to go to your house. And I'm sure Peter said, "Uh, you can go. I'm not going. I hope you have a good time there. I'm not not even going to the neighborhood. You know, Jesus, it's bad enough that you talk to him. It's bad enough that you invite him to follow us. But we are not going to his cootie-infected, 
his sinner-infected home. We are not going to eat his food. We're not going to touch his utensils. We're not going to eat anything prepared in his kitchen. Just leave us out of this, Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, we are. Yes, we are. And so they went, and they had a meal with Matthew. But that wasn't his last interaction with a tax collector. Because there's this other guy called Zacchaeus who was up in a tree one day as Jesus is walking by and he's with his disciples again and Jesus looks at him and said, Zacchaeus, come on down because we're going to your house and I can picture Peter throwing up his hand going, there you go again. We are working so hard to develop the right atmosphere, the right reputation, and you keep ruining our reputation by talking to tax collectors and wanting us to go to their house. It's no wonder that everybody thinks that we're unclean. And Jesus says, let's go. Because Jesus wasn't concerned with ceremonial uncleanliness. He knew what he could do. And Jesus speaks to his men, the women that were following me, and says, don't you understand? This is a new era. Something new has come with my arrival on earth. God is demonstrating what God is like and how God views people. God elevates the dignity of every single person that he has ever created because he does not look at them through the lens of economics. He looks at them through the lens of they have been fashioned in my image. And then he follows that up with a conversation with the centurion. And I'm certain by now the disciples are probably used to Jesus' unorthodox ways, but when the centurion comes, who is a living example that Israel is cursed because they're under the rulership of Rome, and the centurion comes to Jesus and said, I have a servant that's sick, I'm certain they said, there is no possible way that you're ever going to do anything for this centurion, is there? And he heals the centurion's servant, and then he adds on to that, I have not seen so great a faith in Israel. Jesus went out of his way to declare the value of people that society has branded as having no value. And when Jesus left this planet, his disciples got it. In fact, the proof that they got it was that the first problem that they had to face in the history of the early church was that they couldn't get Peter and John and Andrew, the guys who had spent so much time with Jesus, they couldn't get them to stop taking care of the widows. They couldn't get them to stop taking care and feeding the people that needed it. And finally, in Acts chapter 6, they said, listen, guys, look, we appreciate the fact that you are not better than us. We appreciate the fact that there's nothing, even though you're the preachers and teachers and the prayers here. We understand that, and we're so grateful for that. But listen, we really need you to preach and to teach and to pray. Can we please get somebody else to wait on the tables so that you can do what you do? And they had to pry their hands open from serving people that needed to be served. Why? Because after three and a half years of watching and being with Jesus and having their feet washed, taking away all of their excuses, they got it. And they were going to live for a greater cause. Oh, does our world need the church to get it. In the first century... It was not illegal for parents who had a baby 
to do something they would call expose it. In other words, they would take a child. If they did not want this child, they would take it to the edge of the woods or perhaps edge of a river somewhere, and they would abandon that child. And then if the baby rolls into the river and drowns, so be it. That was its fate. If an animal comes out of the woods and devours the child, so be it. That was the child's fate. If the baby died of exposure, so be it, that that was the child's faith. And it was not illegal in the Roman Empire in the first century. And once the first century church began to recognize these things happening, understanding the value that Jesus has for humanity, they began to go to the edge of the woods or go to the river and they would take these children, even though these early Christians had very little to even live on themselves, but they would bring them home and begin to raise these children. Why? Because they got it. They begin to understand that if you're going to follow Jesus and the way Jesus describes God, it was a God that loves you and places value on you simply because you exist, not because of what you do. And they raise them in the grace and mercy of God. You know, we often talk at communion time about when we hold the cup up and we say, this is the new covenant in his blood. And we look at that oftentimes in a limited view that recognizes that the new covenant means that Jesus died for us and that we, we no longer have to sacrifice sheep and lambs and things of that nature for our sins because Jesus was the Lamb of God. But do you know that because Jesus was accomplishing revealing the Father to demonstrate that there's a brand new way for us to live, that the new covenant for us today means that there is a life of service that we live. We live in the new covenant of recognizing the value of people like Jesus did because that's what he was revealing God and says, these are people whom I love. And so the church's role is to remind people through our personal behavior and through our corporate behavior that red and yellow, black and white, everybody is precious in his sight And while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and generosity because this is the pattern that Jesus lived and told his father, I have accomplished these things. I've showed them how to live and the value of humanity. My assumption is that you choose to look for ways to live this out. I mean, you're here today or you're watching online, and I believe that everybody said, yes, this, this is the kind of person that I am or this is the kind of person that I want to be. But I want to go back now to the text that we started with about being rich because God invites us to be extravagant in our generosity. And as we, we look at the text, reminded now that Jesus said, I've come to accomplish the Father's will to show everybody whom he loves and how he loves that you all matter to God, no matter what you do or what you've got. And the reason that I use this title, Be Rich, even though it's, it's a little bit misleading, but that's okay. I, I'm at least warning you it's misleading, but it'll capture your attention. In one of the letters that Paul was writing to a young protege by the name of Timothy, he says, I want you to know this. And he said, Timothy, wherever you go, when you're following me, I want you to tell people to be rich. And here's, here's how I want you to describe that. And in our text, it says, command those. Timothy is going back to churches that uh, either he has planted or Paul is planting. He's going back around and he's giving pastoral care to these churches. And Paul tells Timothy, command them. Tell these people that this is the way they are live. You who are rich in this present world. In other words, Timothy, tell the rich people not to be arrogant, 
Not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And he says this, command them to do good and to be rich. In other words, command the rich people to be rich. Command them. Since you are rich, you should be rich. Some of them are going, well, we are rich. He goes, no, no, there's a difference in are rich and be rich. You know, there are a lot of people going, well, I am rich. I know, but you need to be rich. And then God begins to give some description of what does it mean to be rich, not just are rich. Because to be rich indicates that there's a difference in the way you behave than just the are rich. He says, I want you to be rich in good deeds. In other words, because you're rich, don't expect everybody else to do something that you should do. And be generous and willing to share. Now, let me take this opportunity this morning to remind you, you are rich. You are rich. Now, the reason that you may not feel rich is because you don't know how to build margin into your life. That's your fault, not God's. If you spend 101% of everything that you make, you will never feel wealthy. You will always feel stressed. And as your income goes up and your spending goes up, you will feel just the same because God, you've never let God teach you how to live below your means. You don't know what margin looks like. What that means is that you are not very good at being rich. I'm going to help you with that today. Most of you know that one-third of the world's population lives on $2 a day or less. One-third. So here's your task. Just imagine with me for a moment that you're living today under financial stress. And as you look at your financial trouble, it's because of your student loans, your multiple car payments, your internet streaming services, your rent, mortgage, which is too high, your, and now you're making payments on multiple cell phones. And now you are stranded in a part of our world where people make less than $2 a day and you have a translator and your assignment is to explain to them your financial pressure. They're going to look at you like you are crazy. And you want to know what? We are crazy because we are so bad at being rich. Pastor Rod Caesar leads a congregation in New York City, and when I was at his church one time, it was the most fascinating offering time I have ever seen anywhere. In fact, I took the sheet of paper that he used and brought it back with me, and he starts every offering like this. He reads a little portion of Psalm 24, which says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Reminds everybody, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then he makes two statements. He says, we are stewards, not owners, and debt and credit can bring bondage to anyone. And then he has everybody who is a tither stand up in the church. I'm looking at this going, well, that's some pressure. And so all the tithers, which means that these are people that are obedient to Scripture and give at least 10% of their income to the Lord, into the storehouse. Of the, he has them all stand up, and this is what he says. He makes this statement. What do we do with our income or increase that God provides? And they repeat four things. Number one, they say, we tithe and we give the Lord an offering. Secondly, we pay our bills on time. Thirdly, we save systematically and invest with discipline. And fourth, they said, we spend wisely and responsibly. The pastor then asked them this question, what does that mean to you? And they responded with two things. First, they said, we don't buy, 
what we don't need. And the second thing they said is, it means that we don't spend what we cannot afford to spend. And then the pastor asked this, how do we then live? And everybody in the whole congregation all together said, beneath our means, we're learning to build margin. And the pastor concluded this by saying, a deal is not a deal if you can't afford it. And I must, also, I must always consider what is the motive behind my purchases. Paul told Timothy, teach the people to be better at being rich. And by being better at being rich, it means teach them to be generous like rich people. Teach them to serve like rich people. Teach them to leverage their opportunities and leverage their resources for the sake of other people. And the reason that we know that rich people aren't very good at being rich, particularly in America, is because statistics indicate that the higher your income, the less you give away in America. That Americans look at income and the more we get, the more we can spend on ourselves and we never learn the lessons of what it means to build margin into our life. And when your income increases, the amount that you give away should increase as well. That's what it means to be good at being rich. And today, you might not be rich. Maybe you're in high school or college and you're going, I hope to be rich. Well, I want to teach you that when you are, you're going to be good at it. Because that's what Jesus taught us. And you think that money will make your life better. And then God adds this at the end of our text verse. In this way, in other words, the generosity with which you live, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I believe that it's important for all of us to recognize that this is the temporary age. There is a coming age that is eternal, that is permanent, and everything we do in this age is earning something for that age. And so teach them that they're setting up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take a hold of the life that is truly life. There's a lot of people that are being deceived as to what true life is in this world. And what God is saying to us today, worship team, if you could please come. You cannot lose money that you give to the kingdom and you will never miss money that you give to the Lord's work. Do you know that there are some things that you spent buying from Amazon or on TV that for $39.99 you don't even know where they are anymore in your house? There's a lot of things that you, you just, it was important in that moment and you can't even find the box today. God simply wants us to know he will never lose track of what you put into his hands. And here's the last thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus or, you know, if the only reason that you're here today is because somebody said they're going to take you out to a meal after this, and you're just saying, I'm just putting my time in. You know what? If I knew your story, I might not be a follower of Christ either. I don't know what's going on in your life. But what I can tell you is that our devotion to God is to be demonstrated and authenticated through the compassion that we live with. So next Sunday, at the end of this series that I've been doing on A Greater Cause, the service is going to be a little bit shorter, 
because when we conclude here, we're going to go over to the other church building on West Genesee Street, and in the basement, we're going to have a ministry fair. We're doing that because we want you to get used to going over there. Can't wait. The other thing is if 100% of the people that are involved in this congregation are involved in something that serves people, then we will be living out our vision and mission statement. We're going to learn what it means to live and be rich in good deeds. Well, why do we do that? Because everybody matters. Even our enemies. Everybody matters. So, Lord, would you lead us to help us to live for a greater cause because Jesus accomplished revealing the value of people when he revealed God. 